Welcome back to Sunday School 2021. Wow. I'm going to go ahead and get started closer to be on time this time than usual. We've had several weeks break from Sunday School. Last time I think I taught a session was in December, and we started this in November. Uh, this is, we're doing five weeks on Pilgrim's Progress. I had to remind myself where we left off. Uh, we're on week three of five weeks in this book, and I'm just trying to remember where did I leave off again, and where was Pilgrim, and um, so I'll, I'll start this morning with just a brief review of where we've been and where we are, um, but I want to start early because, to be honest with you, I kind of read through this last night, and I was at least five minutes over, so I need to push through today. A lot of things that I want to go over. We're not going to have to be able to hit anything real deep. We're going to hit a lot of small things, and we'll leave you to read the book, the book yourself, and catch up on all the details. And as I've talked to many of you, many of you are Pilgrim's Progress fans, and uh, some of you I know know more about this book than I do. So welcome back, and let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your kindness to us. Uh, thank you for bringing us back together uh, in Sunday school here to study, Lord, your word and the truths. This morning, Lord, I pray that we would listen carefully to this, this pastor in our lives, uh, John Bunyan. And as he tells this uh, story, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged to think about uh, the things in the Christian life that, that would be encouraging and help us to be more devoted to you. So we pray we, you would be with us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So in week one, we talked about the Pilgrim's Progress as an allegory of the Christian life. And we talked about John Bunyan himself and a little bit of his story. All through the book, Bunyan's life is intertwined in this book. Those who are uh, devotees and like to read all the interesting part, you see how his life is inserted he is the narrator, and so he shows up frequently through the book. And uh, there's even a section here that he inserts himself. If I have time, I'll get to it. So he's telling the story as the narrator, and he's also about his life. Many of the people that he meets are people that are, are in his own life. If you remember, he was writing this from prison, and it was published in 1678. He was persecuted by... Uh, the church for a season, that's what got him there, and the church and the state. The next uh, second week, we studied about Pilgrim's uh, voyage from getting to the wicked gate and salvation and uh, feeling the burden finally come off of his back and beginning the, the Christian walk. He goes to the house of the interpreter and gets trained there. We talked in uh, the third week about the house beautiful. I love that name for the church where he gets equipped, he gets trained, he learns about the things that God would have him be trained in. And we talked a little bit about just the, the uh, effectiveness and the, the job of the church to train us as we submit under her authority. Uh, we talked about some of the fights and the battles, uh, Apollyon, the, the, great, the demon, and the valley of the shadow of death is where we left off. So a lot of these battle scenes are the ones that are great for your kids when you're reading them, especially your boys. It's uh, pretty exciting. And so we leave off the last meeting, if I remember right, going through the valley of the shadow of death. And 
He's making it through uh, the, the pits and all of those things. And, and now we come to the day where the, 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 the night starts to break and the day starts to come. And he still has a way to go through this valley of death. And he re recognizes the pits that are in front of him. Now he can see where he's gone and where he's going. And he realizes if the sun had not come up, I probably could not have made it because the, it was so narrow and the pits were so close and deep. He just thanks the Lord. That, again, the picture of the sovereignty of God in his life and also a reminder us to, as we apply it to us, that the Lord is watching over us when we go through the difficult times in our life. Sometimes when we're not sure how we're going to come out of these things, God is in control. Uh, today we're going to talk about a faithful friend and friendship. He comes out of the valley of death and he hears a person singing and, and a person's quoting scripture ahead of him and he sees this man. He calls out to him and tries to catch up with him but the man will not slow down. He has to literally, Christian, pilgrim, literally has to run to catch up with this man. And he does and introduces himself. He's kind of proud of himself that he caught up to him. And he recognizes him as a young man named Faithful. He knows Faithful. Faithful comes from the same city that Christian came from, the city of destruction. And it turns out that he soon followed Christian out of the city, uh, and he was a little bit behind him. But he's in front. How is it that he's in front of him? It turns out that uh, his story is a little different. All of our Christian lives are different. Bunyan makes the point that we don't all experience the same trials. The path is the same. Trials come, but they're not exactly the same. And faithful, as he's coming, avoids, somehow he avoids the lions and the, the, the house, beautiful. The, he, he avoids those uh, encouragements, but the dangers of the lions. And there's a, a conversation between he and uh, Christian of just companionship of sharing my story, the importance of sharing your testimony with others and their, their testimony to you. There's this kind of encouragement we get in the Christian life of having close friends, and they are a treasure. He brought news from home, and his testimony was different. When he went to the house beautiful, if you remember, there were two lions that were in front, the very fearful lions, but they weren't there when they were asleep when he came through during the day. He had no real fear of those. And many people think that the kind of persecution that um, Bunyan faced with the church and the state for a season was there, and for a season it was gone. You don't always face, in those times that it was gone, the church thrived. And so faithful story is different, but it's also the same in, in many ways. Uh, in Faithful's testimony, he meets an old man named Adam the First. Imagine Adam the first is there, and he tries to convince in a fleshly way for Faithful to get off the path and come work with him in his farm for good wages. He tempts them with his, his daughters, like lust of the flesh, lust of the, of the eye, that's their names, that's a very sensual kind of thing, and he'll pay them good wages. And he's very much tempted to go along with Adam. Uh, at some point then, he, he listens to him and he realizes that this is a, a, a trick, that he's going to sell him into slavery. And his mind opens up, and he rejects Adam, and he continues on the path. Adam reaches out and grabs a 
pinch of his flesh and pinches it off. He says, I think the man took a part of me with him. It hurt so bad. And so he continues on the way, but he said, I'll come after you with someone else. This is what Adam's threat is. Adam, the first, walks away, and here is faithful, going up the hill of difficulty. The same path that Christian went. This is important. He gets to the, near the top of the hill. He's exhausted. He's feeling, um, and he needs a rest. And that's when a man sent by Adam, whose name is, anyone know? Moses. Moses is running after him. He catches him. He doesn't really say hello. He meets him and pops him in the face, knocks him down, and literally knocks him out flat. He wakes up and he said, why did you do that? And he hits him again, blows him down and knocks him down. And he finds out that he's Moses and he thinks he is going to die there. This man is just beating him mercilessly. He wakes up and he says, hey, have mercy on me. And Moses said, I don't know how to have mercy. <laughs> and he keeps beating him. And he thought his life was in then, but you have this, this picture Bunyan inserts of Christ himself walks by and he, he tells Moses, that's enough. No more of that. It's a picture of Bunyan presenting law and grace, the effects of the law. And he finds out, well, why are you even beating me? He tells them, it's because in your heart you lusted after that man's offer. And I knew it. And that's why he's getting beaten. So the law is actually right, but grace comes and saves him. It's a beautiful picture there. The next man you meet is a man named Talkative. I hope you don't know anyone that you would label that. All these characters mean something in this allegory, and Talkative is talkative. He has a lot to say. There's a long section of Pilgrim's Progress here, and it, it is a little, bit, a little bit tedious, like going through numbers. Sorry, numbers fans. It is a little tedious, but it's not a section to rush through. It's very, very uh, enlightening. It's a really a discussion about external religion, for your notes, external religion and real faith, and you begin to see these differences. These are, these are times where Bunyan, the author, is trying to help us have some discernment. There's a difference between talking about religion and having real faith. What is the difference? He goes through several discussions about that. Um, Talkative states the importance of it is to cry. I think I included this in your notes. I love this discussion here. This is just one, kind of an example as they start this conversation. So you have pilgrim, Christian, and you have faithful. And you have this man talkative that they're meeting with. Christian knows this man. He knows that he is um, a difficult man at home. His, his house is a bitter house. Um, there's a lack of uh, evidence that he's a believer. But Faithful is encouraged to speak with him. Here's how part of the conversation goes. Faithful asks him, how does the saving grace of God reveal itself when it's in your heart? What does that do? He's trying to draw out uh, Talkative's thoughts. And Talkative is very happy to speak about himself and what, what happens about religion. He says, first, it causes a great outcry against sin. Well, that sounds great, right? The faithful is unsatisfied with that answer. Then he goes on and says, the second point, and faithful stops him. Wait a minute. We're missing something here. Isn't it better to say, it inclines your heart to abhor its sin? And Talkative is, well, what's the difference? 
And Faithful says, a great deal. Crying out doesn't go deep enough. It must see sin as evil in your own heart. There's a difference between external religion and having a real active faith in Christ. And so this section of Scripture helps us to see that. I think Bunyan probably has the idea of the Anglican in his mind. Uh, at the time of Bunyan's writing, uh, if you were born, you were an Anglican. You didn't actually join the church, you were an Anglican. Uh, that was part of the, the system there. Uh, you went, said your prayer, did your external work, and you went home. There was nothing about really having an uh, integral relationship with Christ. Now, there were some Anglicans that were that way, but in general, it was a, a real problem. And so there's that conversation with Talkative, and eventually they give up on him. And he talks a lot. So they move on down the road, and they meet evangelist again. If you remember evangelist, evangelist is uh, the idea of a faithful pastor. And he shows up at the beginning. He, he sends both of them to the wicked gate. Uh, he directs them to salvation. And, and then he shows up later to correct Christian as he he seeks after uh, trying to be justified by the law. So he, he's just this vision of a faithful pastor in his work in your life. And he meets both of them, and they're very much encouraged uh, when they see him again, and uh, he gives them some words of advice. They want some information about it from him. And he, he tells them several things, but one of them is he cautions them. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a prophecy, really is. He said that one of them either Christian or faithful, they're going to this, the city of Vanity Fair. And it appears that he wanted to talk to them before they went to Vanity Fair. This is a great section in the book. And he wants to caution them that one of you, or both, will seal his testimony with your blood. So one of you are going to die, or both of you, will die in that city. So that is a very sobering thing to think about. He also gives some advice that I want to read to you. Uh, imagine the last time you're going to see your children, this side of heaven. I think this is how evangelists is looking at uh, faithful and Christian right now. Don't know if I'm going to see you again. Here's some admonition. Think about this as kind of a last statement, maybe to the people that you love. He cautions them to uh, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. There are some who set out to attain this crown, and after they have gone a good distance for it, they allow another to come and take it from them. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. So, at the time, in, the, in this Puritan mind of thinking, uh, attaining heaven is a fight. They're very well, it's a battle. Uh, they were ready to arm up against the state, against anyone that would deter them. Stay with me here. You are still within gunshot of the devil, church. At Calvary, we're still in the gunshot of the devil. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted the point of shedding your blood. Let the kingdom be always uppermost in your minds. Believe unflinchingly in the things that are unseen. Let nothing that is on this side of heaven get within and attach itself to your hearts. Above all, 
Be very careful of your own hearts and the lusts that can hide there because the heart is the most deceitful thing there is and desperately wicked. So remember the words, closing. Therefore I have set my face like flint and I know I will not be put to shame. Don't forget that you have all the power of heaven and earth on your side. What a great admonition today and to these men. And they say goodbye and they move on to Vanity Fair. Uh, Vanity Fair is uh, termed after Ecclesiastes 1-2 where Psalms is, is vanity, all is vanity. Uh, everything on this world will pass away. Everything you see, uh, even us, uh, pass away. And so remember that as you think about the world and its values. Vanity and Vanity Fair represent worldliness and the temptations to follow it. Built by the, the devil himself, bills above all that is bought and sold there is vanity. And it does represent kingdoms and societies and families and preoccupations, just life. And Randy's been talking a little bit about these idols that can form good things that can become idols for us and the lure of the world makes them more important than, than Christ. Worldliness is the path that we are designed to go through. This is part of our story. We're, we're in the middle of worldliness and we're expected to be different. First uh, John, if we can, we want to get not too far from the scriptures. Let's turn to First John. Several verses we could have chosen this morning. First John chapter 2. We'll start in verse 15. You'll know this verse. John says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father. But it's from the world, and the world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Several passages here in the scriptures remind us the world is not our friend. The world is our enemy. We need to be actively fighting against the world's thoughts and its values. If you're not fighting, you're probably conforming at some point to the thoughts and ideas of the world. Uh, but... It's part of our story. It's part of how God is refining us, uh, even when we fail. Uh, I've told some of you that I am working through Derek Thomas, in one of his uh, series on Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, I like he quotes a man named David Wells, a theologian, and he quotes him as saying, worldliness, listen to this, worldliness, everything in the culture that makes sin look normal and righteousness look odd. Think about that. It makes righteousness look odd, but sin looks normal. Is that not where we're living today? Isn't this kind of what we hear? It's turned around. And so a Christian looks different. He acts differently. True disciples of Christ do not fit in the world. We stand out. We're awkward. We ought to be awkward. We shouldn't fit in. I have my, a story about my, da my daughter's pastor in Bloomington, Indiana. He was asked to come on a student cable program 
in, in the college. The college students ran it, and they wanted to have a debate. And he, they invited him to come. They had a ministry there, so they knew of him. And on one side, there's a, there's a lady that's a moderator. On, on the other, one side, there is a, a, a lawyer who is homosexual. He's going to give the case for homosexuality. On the other side, they invited this pastor to come in and give the biblical view. Think about this. So this man comes and brings probably the biggest honking Bible that he could find, probably, sets it in front of him. He opens up the pages, and he sets it down. And my first thought, Ken's first thought is, this guy's kind of a zealot. He's a little extreme, I think, isn't it? And as I thought about that, I began to rebuke myself. And my daughter described the, what, what really happened. This was a gentleman explaining the case for the Bible, but having it as an authority. He was awkward. He didn't fit in. I need to be like that. I need to be like that man. What a great example of faithfulness. The Word of God is our ballast. It is the truth. You don't need to be ashamed of that. So Christian and uh, Faithful walk into this town, and immediately they realize something's different about these people. And there's basically three things for your notes that they notice. One is their, their dress is different. The second is their speech and their interests. Dress? Does it really matter how we dress, Christian? Yes, <laughs> it does. The Bible has a lot to say about our attire. It reflects somewhat of who we are and what we value. Yes, your dress matters. Um, does it look worldly? I'll leave that up to you. But is it, is it an issue? Yeah, it's an issue. Scripture has a lot to say about that. But they realized these two men in this town didn't look like the kind of clothes we wear. They definitely looked odd. Their speech was different. They spoke about religion and this kingdom, uh, that there's some higher authority other than theirs, and their interests were different. So Vanity Fair is literally a fair. They're selling you stuff. They're, they're bringing all these trinkets out. The world has to offer uh, lustful things, sensual things, and these things to waste your time, and they're uninterested in any of it. Their mind is set. They want to just get through the city and mind their own business and try to get out. That's not going to happen. They are immediately noticed. They're rejecting all their offers. They're awkward. They look different. And sure enough, a crowd forms and a commotion starts. And uh, the police are brought in and they are arrested. Like, for what? What did you do? And so this is, becomes a, a real um, kind of heart-wrenching section of the scripture. It's really a, a discussion of martyrdom in, in ways. Uh, they are t trying to be salt and light, but they are arrested and placed in jail and what is the charge? The charge is they will not follow their laws because they have the law of Nebuchadnezzar. You can worship no other god here but ours. And they recognize these men were not going to do that. They're, bringing, they're brought into the judge and faithful is brought to trial first. And the judge, whose name is Lord Hategood. Don't you love these names? Lord Hategood. Oh, my God. Um, he's charged... Faithful is charged with contempt of their laws and worshiping no other gods. He has tried, false testimonies are brought in to twist his words, reminiscent of Christ's uh, days. Uh, he is faithful 
in his replies, but he is sentenced to death. Uh, it is a mock trial. They, uh, they cut him with knives. They slice him with swords. They stone him, and then they burn him. And as sad as that is, you're also told that there's a chariot waiting for him. And as soon as he, he passes, he is taken to heaven. And you're, you're reminded of what evangelists told them. The one who leaves first, the one who dies first, will have it better than the one who's left. You'll avoid the other trials, and you'll be taken into the glory of the Father. So faithful gives his life up. Christian is in jail, and he's awaiting his turn. But as God would have it, he is set free in the story. He says, but he who rules over all, having the powers over their rage in his hand, made it possible for Christian to escape. What a great reminder to the persecuted church, or if you're not happy with our government, God is in control. His hand will stay theirs. He's watching over the believer's life. But um, Christian is given the opportunity by God's grace to escape, and he, he runs, and he notices someone comes with him. This is another neat part of the story that uh, friendship is the value of having friendship. Another young man follows him. His name is Hopeful. Hopeful is, becomes the next close friend with Christian that will walk through him through the rest of his journey. Hopeful is um, saved by the testimony, through the testimony of what hap just happened in Vanity Fair. He's from Vanity Fair, but he sees the trial, and by that testimony of Faithful's life, he commits his life to Christ. Not only that, he catches up with, with Pilgrim, with Christian, and tells him what's happened to him. He said, but there's others coming. They're not leaving yet, but that, your testimony and his, there are others that are coming. It's just, uh, just a reminder to us of you know, our testimony in Christ. And remember, Bunyan, he is only some a century away from seeing some of the horrific uh, events against the pastors and uh, burning at the stakes and that sort of thing. Uh, and that happens in some places today. The church is persecuted. Uh, and here in the state, we have things so well. So he is converted. <clears throat> Both leave and escape, and they begin to encourage one another. So there's Vanity Fair. Glad to, glad to get out of there. Uh, there's a lot there that we, we, we scanned over. But the third part today, we're going to talk about uh, several people that we meet and I, I've just labeled it almost Christianity. So several times in Pilgrim's Progress, what Bunyan wants to do is he wants you to exercise your powers of discernment. So something that looks right, but it's not right, and he, he walks you through it and figuring out why, what's not right about this. And so this lesson, the sermon, is surrounded about several men who are following after them. And if you were to ask them, where are you going? They would say, I'm going to the celestial city, just like you. Look like Christians. Outwardly, sometimes we behave like Christians. We want to see us, but we're not really. And this becomes obvious. Their names, again, tell you everything you need to know, sort of. Uh, these three men, particularly uh, helpful, that one's name is by ends, meaning whatever, by whatever ends I need to get to heaven, I'll get there. If it's taking advantage of you or not, uh, we're all going to the same place. What does it really matter? 
The next man's name is Hold the World. Okay. How can I hang on to the loves of this world and the Christian faith? And then the third man's name is Save All. Again, he is schooled in how to take advantage of other people and uh, their instructors, and they know each other. Their instructors train them on how to take advantage of others. Each has his desire for being successful in the world, but also want to maintain their, quote, that they're going, they're Christians and they're going to the celestial city. And when they talk to Christian, you have this dialogue going back and forth about who you are. They meet buy-ins first, and he, he is put off and rejected uh, and, and made clear that his ends aren't in line with the scriptures. But he goes off and he colludes with the other two. So the three of them get together and they say, what kind of things can we ask to try to convince these two guys, Christian and um, Hopeful, that we're all on the same path? And they, they try to come up with these questions and they fail. And the real thrust of this whole section is, can I hold the world? And can I hold my Christian faith? Can I love both and, and be a successful Christian or be a faithful believer? And Bunyan's making it clear to us that that's not possible. Uh, you will love the other or reject the other. So uh, it's a real clear call to us to separate ourselves from the world. Uh, the next... Uh, probably famous section we come to are Demas and the silver mines. And this is really talking about the love of money, the love of money that lures our hearts, the lure of quick riches. It's a re- Demas is a reference. We, we talked about uh, recently some of the companions of Paul, and it tells us in First uh, Timothy or Second Timothy that he, he abandons Paul in his last days there in prison uh, for the love of this world. He abandons him. So you kind of learn about Demas's character by his name. And now he's given in charge of the silver mines. And again, it's along the straight and narrow path that they're going to, to reach the celestial city. And along the side is this temptation. And this man named Demas comes up and he offers them, come in and take a look. There's lots of wealth to be made. Uh, just come and look. It's not You don't have to stay. Just come and look at all the, the wealth Many have gone down to become rich, he tells them. And uh, hopeful, he is tempted. This is probably an area that he is, you know, we're not all tempted in the same areas in the same ways. Uh, he is interested. And he tells his brother, hey. Well, he doesn't say it that way. <laughs> but he says, hey, let's go and check out the silver mines. Maybe we can make a profit. And so here is the, the older brother, Christian, kind of, telling him the follies of that. He says, no, we know this. I know this man. Uh, we, we read about him. He rejected Christ, and now he's here trying to deceive us, and he convinces hopeful that, that there is uh, no hope there in the silver mines. You find out later, if they had gone down there, that the fu- there, were, there was a pit there. The fumes coming up out of that pit uh, would make you dizzy and delirious, and it was treacherous, and most people would fall in into this pit and never come out again. And he knew that. Um, so they reject Demas and the silver mines. In 1 Timothy 6, 9, I put in your notes here, it says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires 
that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And all of these are meant for us, church. Where is the love of money? I know I have to cut the weeds off too. They just start to grow. And the world's desires, we see money as a hope that it'll provide for us almost like an idol rather than God, not realizing God's in control of that as well in thankfulness. So they, they reject Demas in the mines, but they come across this, this statue. It's a statue of a woman, and it looks like a pillar. Who do you think this is? <laughs> it's Lot's wife, yes. Literally a pillar of salt. And how she gets here, we don't know. We don't ask those questions, but her statue's here. And it says on there, remember Lot's wife. That's for your notes. And so you think about Genesis 19 and all that happened with them. And they're just leaving this great temptation to go down and become rich. And here's this, remember Lot's wife. How are those connected? And it really brings out Christian comments to hopeful. Uh, Here's a picture of Lot's wife. She escaped the judgment, Sodom, yet was destroyed by another. Think about that. She... She ran out of Sodom, right? She was rescued, but she looked back. And it's a pastor here, Pastor uh, Bunyan is telling us, temptation's that way. We're victorious over it, but you're not done with it, right? You have to reject it and continue rejecting it. Put it out of your mind and keep putting it out of your mind. Remember Lot's wife. So... Um, I'm reminded of Scripture, Galatians 6.1, it's about temptation. Uh, it says, even while you're helping another brother out of the pit, uh, watch yourself, because you will be tempted also. Even, even in the middle of ministry, temptation comes. Okay, I'm not sure I, I'm doing on time, but I'll keep it going. So after the silver mines, after the Lot's wife, they come to a really great place. It's called uh, the path. Alongside the path comes a river. It's called the river of God. And it is literally, uh, uh, Bunyan references uh, Psalm 65, 9. It talks about how the rivers flow from God and water the earth and bring uh, uh, vegetation and and blessing. And they are so happy (laughs) to have this lush river next to the path and the trees and the shade and uh, it is a pleasant path. It's nice and smooth. Uh, it's just a reminder uh, of those times in your spiritual life when life is good and fellowship is sweet and the Lord seems near. Remember those times. Remember those times because you need them when the other times come. Remember those times when the Lord is near. And so they rejoice over that. But very quickly... The path turned difficult uh, right after that. Think about Jonah. Remember Jonah's sitting out there and, and this shade tree comes over him? And he's so happy with the shade tree. And then as soon as the tree goes away, what happens? Starts complaining. <laughs> unhappy. The blessing you gave me went away. Now the heat is here and I'm blistering and he's miserable. Uh, this is sort of what we are here in that now that the, the path has gone different, and then the river moves away, okay? So this is kind of a time in your Christian life that Bunyan is presenting as when 
you're kind of on, uh, you're coasting along. You don't necessarily feel near to the Lord. Nothing's really convincing you of something great in the Scriptures. Your mind seems kind of dull. It's those dry periods of your Christian life. And he's reminding us, be careful. This is when we're often tempted. And this happens with uh, hopeful and Christian. They, uh, the path gets difficult and very, very difficult on their feet. It becomes very painful to keep going on. And then Christian notices the bypath meadow. This is another road. They, he, he notices it's on the other side of the fence, and it travels right alongside the narrow way. He looks down as far as he can see. It goes right along the path, but it's smooth. He thinks, let's do that. It's going the same way. It's right next to it. We're not really, really off the path, are we? And we're actually hopeful, kind of tries to talk him out of it. Aren't we supposed to stay on the path? And this time it's, it's Christian who's tempted. And he says, no, it, it looks good. And it's right along the path. It's, it's the way sin presents itself to the believer. It's deceptive. Looks good. Looks nice. And he's, he convinces his younger believer to jump, jump the fence. And they go down Bypath Meadow. Just think of the name, Bypath Meadow. Who would not want to go to the meadow, right? It sounds wonderful. And for a time that it is, it's easy on their feet, it's smooth, the grass is lush, and they, they even comment to one another, didn't we make the right decision? It is so comfortable here. And very quickly things turn around. There's a man in front of them. His name is Vain Confidence. The lights are bleeping at you. Vain com- you're following Vain Confidence. He's ahead of them. And he says, hey, where are you, guys? Where are you going? Vain Confidence says, well, I'm going to the Celestial City. This is the way. Well, that's great. It confirms that we're doing the right thing. But suddenly and quickly, it says, that it becomes very dark. The day it fades quickly. It becomes dark. They can barely see the man in front of them. And then they hear a great fall. As a man falling into a great pit did vain confidence. All they can hear are his groanings. And then they start to fear. And about that time comes a storm. And there's rain and lightning and thunder. And then they begin to panic. So then they're very sorrowful. Christian is particularly sorry. What have I done now? Don't go too far away from the scriptures into sin before misery by the love of your Lord will come and remind you this is not the right path. So they're in panic, and they are trying to get back to the path, but the water is actually rising. They're actually fighting to get back. They literally cannot make it. They're exhausted. They find a small shelter to rest in away from the rain, and as they rest, they fall asleep. And in the morning, someone wakes them up. Who, who wakes them up? Anyone know? Say it. Do we know? No one? Thank you. You're whispering. The giant despair. I wish I could say that in a deep voice. The giant despair. He wakes them up with a club, and he, he tells them, you guys have been, you're trespassing on my property. Uh, you are my prisoners. Now we've come to the doubting castle and the giant despair. One of, probably one of the most one of the most popular parts of the story, uh, Doubting Castle and the Giant Despair. He awakes them. He takes them to a dungeon. You find out that this giant has a wife, and her name is Distrust. 
Why would you marry something? Never mind. I don't, I don't know. Distrust, that sounds great. Uh, anyway, so he marries, his wife is named Distrust, and they're in this dark prison. Now, for three days, they have no light, very little, no food, no water, no communication. Like, what are we going to do here? Uh, they're in this castle, and they're locked in the cage, and they become to feel hopeless. Uh, you know, A, they, their sin has brought them here. Two, they've been captured, and they seem to have no hope. Doubting castle is a state of sadness and depression uh, where you begin to doubt. You doubt God's presence. You doubt, you doubt his sovereignty. Oh, I know he loves the world, but he probably doesn't love me. You know, those kind of thoughts. You doubt God's love for you. And it parallels a lot of, of several famous people that we know. Bunyan himself uh, suffered from depression, particularly early on, his doubts in, in his Christian walk. He had to fight with it for assurance. You think about guys like Spurgeon. Uh, is it me? Is it just me? It, is some, it seems like some of the most creative men uh, suffer with bouts of depression. I, I don't know why that is, because some of the most prolific writers talk about it. Uh, that's just Ken, but it just seems that that might be true. And they become very, very sad. Uh, Bunyan puts a note here, Psalms 88, 18. It's a very sad psalm of loneliness and what sin does to a life. And the quote in 18 says, Darkness is my only friend. Um, I don't know if you've been there before, but this is where they are at the moment. I, I remember, I don't typically uh, have, for whatever reason, by God's grace, I don't struggle with depression, really. I know many of us do, um, cyclically, but I don't much. But I do remember one time in my Christian walk, and some of you know my story about my family, and I can remember one evening, it felt like I was thrown into a deep pit. Some of you can resonate with this. It feels like there was no way to get out, and I felt hopeless. And I was like, what is this? And I thought to call my friend, Dan. Sometimes I'll tell Dan, Dan, uh, I need to talk to you as, as, as my, I'm just talking to you as my friend, my buddy. And I was talking about stuff. Sometimes I call him, I said, Dan, I need to talk to you. I need, I need a pastor. And that night I called him and I said, brother, I need both. I can't get out of this pit. And this is strange. What is this? And he helped walk me through and out of that. I know several of you have those kind of feelings and battles. This is what Doubting Castle and the Giant Despair represent to the believer. He's, they're there. Um, then you see a series of advice. The Giant Despair has them. He informs his wife, this lovely wife. She gives him three pieces of advice uh, different days. The first is, uh, he tells them he has two prisoners. She says, where are they going? What are they doing here? They're pilgrims again, and they're on their way to the city, uh, the celestial city. She tells them, in the morning, go down there and beat them without mercy. Yes, my dear. <laughs> so he goes down the next morning and beats them, and they have no strength. I mean, literally beats them almost to death, and without any information about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And the next day, the wife asks about them. She said, what? They're still alive? And, yes, my dear. <laughs> Her second piece of advice is, 
Being surprised, she says to despair that give them things to kill themselves. Give them no hope. Think about this. This is a, a book at the time Bunyan wrote for, for families. This is a, a topic that families had about hurting yourself and uh, suicide and these kind of conversations. So uh, the giant gets up the next day. He, he brings them three things. He gives them no hope that they'll ever escape. You're just going to be beaten every day. Uh, start, you'll be starved to death and beaten to death. Here are three things. A, a knife. He gives them a rope. And he gives them poison. Choose any way you want to do it. And there's a real honest conversation about should we do this or not. Particularly Christian is thinking through this. That this seems better. Why, why would we want to stay here? This is the conversation. And this time it's faithful who reminds him that there's no option of hurting yourself. Thou shalt not what? Murder. You may not murder. We may not do these things to ourselves. They, they tell despair when he's given him this, this, this option. He says, would you please just let us go? Just let us go free. We'll go back. We'll get out of here. And to this, the giant despair gets very angry. And he kind of reveals something about himself. He spasms. His arms spasm up. Uh, does anyone know what a myotonic goat is? You know what a myotonic goat is? Oh, you should Google that. You should Google it. It's, it's, the, it's where you, you, uh, you surprise a goat, and they spasm up, and then they are literally... Raise your hand. Some of you guys are nodding. You all know what this... Oh, you got it. It's so funny. People will surprise the goats, and they freeze up, and then they just fall over their legs like this, you know, and for a few seconds, and they get up, and they run on. So people find ways to scare the goats. It doesn't take just fear. It's, um, they could be really happy about something. They they spaz out. I don't know how better to say that. They spaz out. Apparently, the giant had this, probably got so angry, his hands failed him. Uh, he got over that. And he has, uh, again, you have these two advices. You have the wife's advice, and then faithful begins to give his advice. And he reminds him, no, we shall not, we cannot murder. The scriptures tell us that. Therefore, it cannot be an option. We have to trust God. So the wife finds out that they haven't killed themselves. Her third advice is, Show them the past bones of the pilgrims who have already passed. He does. He takes them in the morning, drags them out around the, the, the yard, and shows them the bones of the pilgrims that have died there. And he tells them. He gives them an ultimatum. Ten days. In ten days, I'm going to tear you to pieces just like these other men. So now, decide what you're going to do. He puts the ultimatum, the timeline there. And again, they have this honest conversation. Ten days? I mean, maybe these options are better. So, there's the wife's advice. Hopeful comes in again with biblical advice. Remember, he tells Christian, remember God's help in the past. This is all instructional to us. When we as believers are going through this type of thing, uh, in, in this situation, it's brought on by sin. Maybe not in every case, but uh, it's common. And he's, he's reminding him of God's sovereignty in the situation. And remember what God has brought you through. Think back about he, how he rescued you. You told me about your battle with Apollyon. You told me about the, I knew about the valley of the shadow of death. I saw, I, I saw your testimony at Vanity Fair. God has rescued you 
Remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget of God's faithfulness to you in the past. So, uh, they will not kill themselves. And so the wife is getting upset. The giant's uh, unnerved that his wife is getting upset. And she said, they must have some kind of hope. He said, maybe they've got something to pick the locks. Uh, you better make sure nothing of that's going on. And so the giant decides, yes, in the morning, remember this, I'm going to search them, make sure they don't have any, any ways to get out. And this is, as you see the big picture of God's providence, you see God's hand moving here. Bunyan's letting you see that they're going to be searched in the morning, and by God's providence, they begin to do several things. One, you don't hear them praying through any of this discouragement. They begin to pray together all night for God's rescue. And the morning is coming, and soon the giant will be waking up. And but, uh, Pilgrim remembers. He remembers that he's got a key, and that is called the key of promise. And I can't do anything better than just to read that part when a Christian realizes he has a key. And this key, he believes, will open all the locks here in Doubting Castle. So it happened on that Sunday about midnight, the pilgrims began to pray and continued in prayer until almost daybreak. Then Christian, a short time before that daylight, became astounded and passionately exclaimed, What a fool I am! Here I lie in a stinking dungeon when I could be walking in complete liberty. I have a key, and it's in my pocket called promise, and I'm sure it will open every lock in Doubting Castle. That's great news, said Hopeful. Give it a try. So he pulls out this key of God's promise that he had forgotten that he had, and he begins to work on the locks, and sure enough, he turns it, and the gate opens. The first gate opens. That leads to the castle yard, and he, he finds his key of promise, opens that one as well. And finally, they went to the large iron gate and put the key in that lock. And although it was extremely stubborn, it too opened. And they thrust this heavy, large gate so hard that it made a large noise. Guess who wakes up? The giant despair. He sees, he sees his uh, captured, captured pilgrims escaping. He runs after them, and then he freezes up. <laughs> With my atonic goat, he freezes up and he falls over by God's providence uh, at the right moment. They are allowed to be rescued. It's a great story about the providence of God. And they get back to the path and they do something that I think is helpful to remember. They erect um, a monument there, a sign that says, this is Doubting Castle, who here lives the a giant despair, this is his land. If you go on this path, realize that he hates believers and he seeks to destroy them. And it says that many that came after them uh, avoided that problem. It, the story about Christianity, you're going to find out more about the giant and the castle if you get to the second part of the book. Um, and so you see this promise. What, are, what is this key of promise? These literally are all the promises that God has given his children in the word of God, that he's given it to us for a reason, to bring us encouragement, particularly when times get hard. And so 
um, in closing this morning, I wanted to kind of rehash uh, what Pastor Bunyan, we call him, is teaching us when doubts, fears, and depression, when they arrive. Uh, number one, don't listen to bad advice. <laughs> Your friends that hang around you that aren't necessarily scriptural, those aren't your sources. Find those people in the body that love the Lord and mature in faith. Seek godly counsel. Uh, the adversary wants to tell us things that aren't true. Resist hopelessness. Resist temptation. Listen to this part. To sin, to repair a situation. All right? So really what you're looking for is in this state, you want to set your mind on the word of God and you want to ask, what does obedience look like now? What does obedience look like now? And resist the temptation to fix something sinfully because it will be uh, there. 1 Corinthians, I love this verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is a very popular verse. It says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Your problem is not unique. I can tell you from experience and probably from your life, everyone thinks when they're in the worst situation, that it's unique. Somehow it's outside of what God is telling us in the Scripture. This circumstance isn't exactly what the Scriptures are talking about. Uh, avoid that temptation. God speaks to the root causes of our sin, and it is instructive to us. He goes on, And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation. Get that. He won't tempt you beyond what you're able, he will provide, it says, the way of escape also so that you will be able to bear it. There's a confidence that if, if God is your Lord and Savior, Christ is your Savior, you have hope. You have hope in the midst of a difficult time. I love this little booklet. I, I had this booklet out more than anything else that I have. Uh, this is called Christ and Your Problems. It's written by the late, sadly, the late Jay Adams, who recently passed, pastor, theologian. Active in biblical counseling. Christ and your problems. We have some of these in the church office. And if you're here first, I'll give this one to you. It's just a great look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He just simply walks you through what that means to the believer who's having hard times and gives you examples of how do I apply this. Uh, it's just a great, small, easy read. I'll probably read this at least every year because it's in my car. <laughs> and it's extremely helpful just to remember. Okay, the second, the first advice, don't listen to bad advice, okay? The second thing Pastor Bunyan would have us know is to remember God's sovereignty over every situation. Our temptation is to think that God is not watching, God is not in control of this person or this situation, when in reality, God is exactly in control of those situations. And the three is to focus on his inspired word for faithfulness, and we mentioned this, what does obedience look like right now? What is God in his word calling me to do in this situation? Which of God's promises, you can highlight this, which of God's promises should I set my mind on? What should I meditate on? Think about some of his great promises. He will never leave you. He'll be near to you. Psalms 34, there's so many. Write them down. Meditate on those promises. And number four, just like Hopeful said, remember God's help in the past. He walked you through that. that. He's going to walk you through this. Um, remember, don't forget. 
God's faithfulness in the past. And number five is to remember God rescues and comforts with a purpose. God, God is not wasting this situation. God is working something in you. Uh, I love First Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. What it's telling you is that God is working in us through every trial and preparing us to help someone else. There's always a plan. God always has a purpose. Think about what you're going through now today, church. Recognize you are being trained for service to help someone else coming behind you who likely will face the very same thing. And so really, in a sense, we've come back to friendship. That's where we started, the need for friendship. And it's kind of where we're ending. Our relationship to one another, the encouragement that we get from one another. Let's take encouragement from that. Next week, we're going to give the last lesson. Uh, Pilgrim is going to face death, and the joys of heaven are becoming even more real to him. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy that you brought to us in Christ. Thank you for the hope that you've given to us. Thank you for your promises that you will never leave us or forsake us, particularly when it's our turn to take... um, a dark way. Help us to remember that you are with us and you bring encouragement and the hope of heaven. Thank you that you've taken care of our biggest problem, our sin problem, and given us the glory of your presence and the hope of your righteousness for eternity. Set our mind there, we pray, Lord. And bless our time this morning as we go into worship, Lord. Prepare our hearts to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.